0: Well, it's good to be here this morning. On a, it's actually starting to feel like winter a little bit. Uh, I, I, saw, I woke up and I saw the snow and the blowing, and I'm like, well, it would be a good day to be out in the deer stand, but you know, sometimes you've got to preach the word. <laughs> uh, so yes, we're going to be taking uh, one, hopefully one last detour from, uh, from the book of Matthew. Uh, Cody's been gone a couple weeks now. Uh, with COVID, but he will uh, vanquish that virus and he will be back (laughs) to lead us next Sunday. Uh, But we're going to be in the book of Romans, chapter 5, today. Uh, Bow your heads in prayer with me. Lord, I I pray that the word of God this morning, Lord, would come in, in power. That you would use the word of God, Lord, to search our hearts, to to, to seek out the intentions of our hearts, Lord, and, and to conform us to your image. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate the text this morning to our eyes and to our mind, that we would understand it, Lord, that we would comprehend it, and that it would be clear to us. Lord, I pray that you apply the Word of God to our hearts, so that we would be people who would not just be hearers of the Word, but doers as well. And Lord, I pray that you would protect me from saying anything that would not be glorifying to you or honoring to you, Lord. But instead, Lord, would what comes from my mouth be glorifying and would be from you and your name. Amen. So, we obviously know that the coronavirus is a pretty uh, big thing right now. And apparently, North Dakota and Fargo are, is one of the, the, the hottest spots in the world for COVID, which is kind of incredible when you think about it. Little old North Dakota, uh, kind of famous, <laughs> not in the good way. Uh, but the coronavirus or COVID, it has uh, caused a lot of uncertainty in our lives. And we know this to be true. Things that we thought once were guarantees are no longer guarantees or no longer certain. Jobs, for instance, uh, a career, uh, a guaranteed, you know, fruitful career, let's say in tourism, no longer certain. You know people in tourism are losing their jobs left and right. Certainly, people in the restaurant industry are losing their jobs left and right. There's a lot of uncertainty in the public education system. Will my kids be in school? Will they not be? Will I have to do will I have to teach them myself? Will I have to do homeschooling? Uh, I've never done homeschooling before. How am I going to do this? People are probably asking these questions. There's a lot of uncertainty that has been caused by the coronavirus. We are people often that, that crave certainty. We like certainty. We like guarantees. You know, we like guarantees so much that when you were a little kid, you probably did something like a pinky promise. You know, like, that's a guarantee right there. I can rely on that. And we like guarantees. We want to feel safe. We want to feel secure. We want to feel comfortable. Like we know what tomorrow will bring. And the coronavirus has certainly turned this upside down. It's amazing, this, this little microscopic virus has turned all of this certainty, all of this guarantee in our life upside down. And so much so, I mean, we're people, and really I'm talking about Americans right now, where we, we just want somebody just to tell us that it's going to be all right. We just want somebody to tell us, you know, you won't die from this if you just do X, Y, and Z. Wear your mask, social distance, quarantine if you're sick. If you just do those things, you will not die. And they'll, they'll throw out these, these promises. Really, they're empty promises, And many Americans, they'll give anything just to have a promise that they won't die. It seems that they would even give their liberty. But we know that God's in control. God is the one that determines when people die. And God is is in control of all this, not man. Now, the Christian faith is not like the world at all what we're experiencing right now in America and really around the world with the coronavirus, the Christian faith is not like that. When God makes a promise, it's a guarantee. It's, it's certain. When he makes a promise, it will happen. It's not like the promises of politicians. And why? Because it rests on his immutable, unchanging character. So have you ever asked the question, how can I know that I'll... Be saved or that I am saved? Can I be guaranteed that one day I will go to heaven when I die? Have you ever asked that question? Is there a guarantee? Like, you know, we want to guarantee will I be guaranteed that I won't die from the coronavirus? Now, to the Christian faith, is there a guarantee that I won't go to hell when I die? That I will go to heaven. Is there such thing as that guarantee in the Christian faith? Or a similar question, kind of in the opposite, can I lose my salvation? Have you ever asked that question before? If I'm saved, can I lose it? Because if I can lose it, then there really isn't much of a guarantee, is there then? And so I hope to address these questions this morning as we look at our text, uh, which is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And more specifically, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at four levels of Christian hope that assure you of your eternal destiny. Four levels of Christian hope that assure you of your eternal destiny. So let's read our text this morning again. I really really encourage you to follow along in your Bibles if you have them. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. It says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So, when we talk about the assurance of salvation, really what we're talking about is Christian hope. These, these two ideas are very synonymous with each other. When we talk about Christian hope, we're talking about assurance of salvation. Now, the hope of a Christian is not like the world again. Obviously, this is clear. A lot of things in the Christian world are not like in the, in the actual world. So, when you hear the word hope used in the world, you might hear somebody say, uh, I hope I get this job. Or, I hope I get into this school that I applied for. Or, I hope I don't die from COVID, and so on and so on and so on and so on. But Christian hope is not, oh, I hope I go to heaven. The so called Christian who says, I hope I go to heaven, does not actually fully understand the gospel because the gospel brings the hope in heaven. Not a chance, not a probability of heaven, but a certainty. The gospel brings the promise of heaven, the guarantee of heaven. So Christian hope is not this chance. Well, maybe I'll have a chance to go to heaven, and I hope I'll go to heaven. No, it's a, it's a guarantee. It's a complete certainty in your eternal destiny. Christian hope is a knowledge that you have eternal life and will certainly dwell with God and his people forever. Now, as certain as the people of the world are that they will die one day, so Christians are certain that they will one day live forever with Christ. It's certain. Now, look with me at verse 1. The very first word is this word, therefore. And it's a very important word. You should get excited when you see the word therefore. Because what it means is that everything that just came before this word is being connected to with what Paul is about to say here. So what did Paul say before he said this word, therefore, in verse 1? Well, if you're familiar with the layout of the book of Romans, in chapter 1, starting in verse 16, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, is a proof for the sinfulness of all humanity. Paul is proving that every single person who has ever lived, both Jew and Greek, is sinful before God. All humanity deserves his wrath. All humanity has practiced wickedness. All humanity is separated from God because of their sin. All people are sinful. So that's what Paul, Paul was proving in, and, and again, chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 3, verse 20. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, through the end of chapter 4, Paul now is talking about and explaining this way of salvation by faith in Christ alone. And so, all people are sinful, but all people can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is is a big deal. This is a huge deal. Because before the gospel, before Jesus Christ, before the work on the cross, salvation was only, only for the Jews. Gentiles were separated from the promises of God. Think about that. Think about... Millions and millions of people around the globe and just this one little teeny tiny nation, this one ethnicity, Jewish, Hebrew, only these people had the promise of salvation. Only these people had the promises of God. Only these people had revelation from God. Only these people could know God personally. And now the gospel tells us that no, salvation has always been by faith. And in that way, salvation is for all people. It's, it's not by keeping the law, it's not by circumcision, and it's not by ethnicity. It's by faith. And in Romans 4, Paul talks about Abraham, who is the father of Israel. And he says, even Abraham was justified by faith. He believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's what Paul was talking about in, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. And so finally now, we get to our word, therefore, and we are transitioning into this next section in the book of Romans. In this section, it runs all the way to the end of chapter 8. It's a really interesting thing. If we look at the theme of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, it's the same theme uh, as chapter 8, verses 18 through 39. These are very similar chunks of scripture. Which means that these two chunks of scripture serve as bookends to everything that is in between. And so in some way, everything in between, chap- the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, all the way up to that bookend at the end of chapter 8, is about this topic of Christian assurance and hope. It all comes underneath this broad theme of hope and Christian assurance. Which is a really incredible thing. So really what you can do is you can start to dialogue with Paul a little bit. You can go, Paul, uh, how does the flesh, how does our flesh play into Christian assurance? The assurance of salvation. How does, that, how does that play in? Romans 6. You might ask, Paul, how does the law play into Christian assurance? My hope in heaven. How does that play into that? Romans 7. Paul, how does the spirit of God play into the assurance of my salvation? Romans 8. And so it's really an incredible thing what Paul is doing here. And then we get to the very end of Romans 8 and we get the most magnificent chunk of scripture about your guarantee and salvation. And we'll, we'll read the whole, uh, the whole text at the end of the sermon, but really, you know, its climax is that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And who's us? Who are the people that can't be separated from the love of God? The people who were bought with his blood. And so all that, in a sense, is an introduction and some context to really bring us now into our text. And our first point, or our first level of hope, of Christian hope, that assures you of your eternal destiny is this. That you recognize that you have peace with God. That you recognize that you have peace with God. So, therefore, we can ask, therefore what Paul Paul says, therefore, we have peace with God through faith uh, in our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God is, is our first level. It's our first you know, level in our package of assurance. Now we have to ask the question what, what, what kind of peace, God, or Paul, what, what kind of peace are you talking about here? Because often when we think about peace, we think about a feeling. And that's usually the most common understanding of, of peace. I, I feel something. I feel at, at peace. And we might hear people say that. And it's, it's kind of a hard thing to describe. What is a feeling of peace? I mean, it might be easier to understand as like an absence of conflict in your soul in a situation or in a decision. You feel peace about this. Maybe you could describe it as a clear conscience when you're doing something. You feel a level of peace doing this, and your conscience is clear about it. However, we often know that feelings are unreliable. We can't rely on our feelings all the time. Someone could feel peace about death. They might feel that they will go to heaven when they die, and it might be misplaced. It might not be true. Indeed, think about Matthew 7. People will come to Jesus you know the day of the lord and they'll say lord lord did we not do many mighty works in your name they they called him lord they thought he was their they, that he was their lord they thought they were going to heaven and i'm sure they probably felt a level of peace about it too and jesus says depart from me you workers of lawlessness i never knew you i never knew you so we can't rely on a feeling of peace so what is this peace it's not a feeling He's describing, Paul is describing an intellectual peace, an understanding. It it stems from an understanding that you were once at war with God, that you were once hostile in mind, that you were once hating him, and that you were once ultimately under his eternal righteous wrath. You understand this, and you understand that there was no peace when you were like this. There was no peace between me and God when I was once a sinner, separated from God. Pursuing the desires of the flesh. There's hostility. There's war. You are guilty. And you must be punished. So it's not a feeling. It's a reality that you live in. Before Christ, we lived in the reality of being not in peace with God. Under his wrath. Ready to be punished. Indeed, there's a cosmic battle going on. Between good and evil, light and darkness, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We know that the kingdom of God will triumph. The true king will win. As we're learning about in, Matthew, in our, our study of Matthew. But there can be no peace between these sides. Light can have no place with darkness. Good can have no place with evil. And there can be no compromise. God's justice demands that he punishes sinners. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is, how can we have peace with God? If I was once this person that hated God, and I was opposed to God in every way, how can I have peace? Here's the answer, and it's, it's the gospel. Christ took the punishment in our place, and we have been given the righteousness of Christ through faith. Thus, we are no longer at war with God, but we have peace with God. It's not a feeling. Something actually happened. My sin was actually put on Christ Christ. 2,000 years ago, on his shoulders, on the cross. And God the Father poured out his righteous wrath on Christ in my place. Satisfying his wrath. And then through faith and believing in Christ and repenting of my sins, I'm given the righteousness of Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, that's what happened to you too. You believed in Christ and you were given his righteous record that he lived out in his life on earth. And your sin was on his shoulders, being punished by God the Father. That is how we can have peace. It's not a feeling, it's something that actually happened. And Paul is saying, we intellectually know that we have peace. How? Because we know the gospel. We know that God's wrath was poured out on Christ. We know this. We know this because the scriptures tell us it's true. So it's, again, it's intellectual And the question is, do you know this? Do you know this about yourself? Do you know that you have peace with God? Paul obviously did. And, and we, we can see that he's, he's celebratory. He's ecstatic about it. He just got done explaining our sinfulness, the, you know, the, the salvation by faith. And now he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. He's celebratory. He's ecstatic. He knows that he deserves wrath, but now he is not under wrath. It's a peace created by Christ's work. And do you know this? Not because you prayed a prayer. Not because you came forward in some altar call sometime. Not because you were baptized. You know this because you know that you are justified by faith in Christ alone. And that Christ satisfied the wrath of the Father, and Christ earned the righteous life that you needed and gives it to you through faith. Do you know this? Now that brings us to our, our second level of Christian hope that assures you of your eternal destiny, and that is that you stand in grace before God, boasting in glory. So if you look at verse 2 with me, it reads, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. So you see this word rejoice there. Another way to say it or another way to translate it is to boast. To rejoice is to boast. So you stand in grace before God, boasting in glory. Now, standing is, is really, it's symbolizing confidence. Confidence. When you stand, you're confident, and that's what Paul is trying to communicate here. So the picture really is that he's describing is, is almost like a judgment throne. The king of the land has all authority and power to enact his justice on his subjects, but the subjects are guilty. Now, if the subjects are guilty, and a subject comes and stands before the king, stands before the king. He's standing in arrogance. And in pride, he's guilty and he's standing before the king, who is his judge. Shouldn't he be on his face? Shouldn't he be on his knees? Shouldn't he be bowing down, begging for mercy? But he's standing, he's arrogant. Because to stand before the king would be to equate yourself with the king, it exudes confidence, innocence, love, and acceptance. But the sinner can have no confidence before the throne of God. None. Indeed, the moment a sinner comes into the presence of God, he is undone. Read Ezekiel, read Isaiah, read these accounts of people coming into the presence of God. They are undone, they are made as though nothing. And they see that they're utterly hideous before the glory of their Creator. Yet Paul says we stand in grace which means we have a confidence. And that's the question, how do we have this confidence? Why are we standing? Is it misplaced? And that's the question I want to ask. Is this standing misplaced? It may be. But the confidence that comes by grace through faith in Christ is the confident confidence that leads to an authentic and justified standing. A confident confidence that comes through a feeling or an experience Or again, praying a prayer or an altar call. Things like that. That is a misplaced confidence. But when you are confident that you have been justified again by faith in Christ alone. That is a confidence that's not misplaced. You can stand before your king. Because you've been made right. You are no longer guilty. And not only that, but the king that you stand before. Father. He is your father. You're his family now. You're his children adopted into the family. You can stand. Now, this word grace is really important here. In, in this word, it, what it, it, it connotes a realm. So it's the realm of grace. It, it's it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. You're standing in the realm of grace. And so there's two realms. That you can stand in, in life. One realm is that you come before the King according to your merit, and thus, in this realm, you come before the King guilty and deserved in punishment because you have reaped wickedness. Now, the other realm is that you stand in grace; that you're in grace. This is the realm of grace, which means you come before the King as one who deserved punishment, but has rather showed unconditional, unmerited favor through Christ. So our standing as Christians is in in the realm of grace. We do not stand before God confident because we have somehow merited his favor. We do not stand before God confident because we have been perfectly obedient to his law. There is no realm like that. There is no realm where a human being can stand before their king by their own merit. It's not possible. It's it's impossible. There's two realms. You stand before, you're, you're before the king in, in wickedness and punishment, guilty. You're before the king in grace, having been given a salvation that you did not deserve. Those are the two realms. And Paul is saying that we are standing in the realm of grace. That is why we're confident. That is why we're boasting. And we're boasting in glory. We're boasting in glory. And what is Glory. Glory is our state once we are given resurrected bodies and Christ comes back and sets up his eternal kingdom. It's the new heavens and the new earth. When we are glorified, our sinful flesh is done away with completely. We're given a new resurrected body and we are glorified. It's our state in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever. Eternity future, we will be living in glory And we're boasting in this glory. We're boasting. We're rejoicing that one day I will be made perfect. One day I will no longer sin. One day I will be with God in heaven, in his presence forever and ever and ever. I'm rejoicing. I'm boasting in this. And you're confident. It's a confident boast. And you're probably wondering, but aren't we as Christians not to boast? Isn't that prideful? And it's true. We can't boast in ourselves. The man truly saved by God boasts in God's work. So this boast in glory is a boast in God's work because God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So when we boast in glory, we're boasting in God's work, which brings glory to him, obviously. And That's how it's supposed to be. Now, if you remember how I described this framework of, of, of Romans five to Romans eight, we see kind of the parallel passage in the end of Romans eight, and it's Romans eight, twenty nine through thirty. Listen to, to how Paul describes this glorification here. Follow along with me. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, God's saving work is so certain that those whom God loved, that's what foreknown means, foreloved. Loved before time was a thing. Those whom God loved before time, before people were even created, before the universe was created, those people will certainly be glorified. And we call this the golden chain. I mean, look at, like, Paul uh, Paul uses these present tense verbs here. Whom he justified, he also glorified, as though it's already done. As though you already have glory, that you have been glorified. But we're not glorified yet, so how is this possible? Well, it's only possible if it's absolutely certain that if you were foreknown and predestined and then called and justified, that you will be glorified as well. It's absolutely certain. It's a golden chain and it can't be broken. So that is why we boast in glory. Because we're absolutely confident. Now, we're going to ask the question, well, can people lose their salvation? If we're boasting in glory, absolutely confident, can we lose our salvation? And that idea is, is, according to the Bible, utter lunacy. Because there would be no boast in glory if you could lose your salvation. So think about these different scenarios. If a Christian can lose their salvation, and if they uh, make it to the end without losing their salvation, let's just say, and it was up to them to keep their salvation, then their boast would be in themselves. If it's possible to lose your salvation and you don't, your boast is in yourself because I made it to the end. It was me. And your boast is in yourself. But we cannot boast in ourselves. Or option two, salvation is by God's hand and you can lose your salvation, but yet God has guaranteed that you would be glorified. Well, now he's a liar. But that is not Christian. That's pure nonsense. That's not in the Bible. That's That's not an option. So again, back to the question, if you can lose your salvation, why are you boasting in glory? Why are you confident in heaven when you do not know if you will decide not to follow Christ in five years or tomorrow? Your boasts would be empty, it would be meaningless. How do you know what will happen tomorrow? How do you know if you will get in a car accident and no longer have the brain function to make a decision to follow Christ was your boast that you had today real? These are valid questions to think about when, if you do indeed think you can lose your salvation. There's all these different scenarios. What if I'm struck with the most severe type of temptation ever that I can't resist and I lose my salvation? Was my boast today meaningless? No. It wasn't. Now, there's two primary reasons why Christians believe salvation can be lost. Two primary primary reasons. The first one is this, doctrinal ignorance. And that makes sense. And usually this is held by people young in the faith. And simply, we just have to uh, teach them what the scriptures say. Pretty simple. We teach them what the Bible says about salvation. About salvation by faith in Christ alone. The certain work that Christ did on the cross. We teach them about Romans 5 and other passages in scripture that talk about this assurance and this guarantee in glory. And we educate. Because nowhere in Scripture can we come to a conclusion that someone can lose their salvation. And the second one is an elevation of human experience. And this has two facets. The first one is an elevation of how you experienced your own salvation. So if, you, if any of you in here remember your conversion moment... And you think back and you remember, what happened when I was converted? And as you think back, you might remember that you chose to follow God, which is true. You believed and you repented of your sin and you were saved. It's true. But then we come to the scriptures and we learn that there's something deeper behind that. We learn that in order for you to have believed in Christ for salvation, God had to make your heart alive. The spirit of God had to come into you and regenerate you and make you alive in Christ so that you can believe in him. So we see that the will of God is the one that's primary or, or, or preceding the, the will of man in salvation. God first chose by his will to regenerate you. And we learn about this in the scriptures. And so we, we realize that our, our, our experience has to be tempered by the scriptures. We can't rely on our observation of reality completely we have to rely on what the scriptures tell us is true about reality especially what is true about our salvation now the second facet of this human experience thing and this is really fascinating is that we think that we are unfailing in our assessment of who is saved and who is not saved and this is this is really interesting. It's as though we can see the heart of man as God does. So I look at Bob. And Bob he he professes to be a Christian. He goes to church, he does Christian things. Thus, my assessment of Bob is that Bob is saved. Bob has been justified by Christ. Uh oh. One day Bob decides to leave the faith. He says he doesn't believe in God anymore. He's not a Christian. He goes back into a life of sinfulness and wickedness. Now what? Now what do we do? Well, my original assessment of his salvation couldn't have been wrong. Thus, the only explanation is that Bob lost his salvation. Because I knew Bob was saved. You see the pride in that logic. It's elevating your own experience, how you experience Bob or whoever else is in the faith that you thought was in the faith and then leaves. And we have examples of this all over. Especially, I mean, it tends to rock us when a very notable pastor, you know, who maybe has written many books and has had an amazing influence, also just says he's not a Christian anymore. And it's like, what? How is that possible? But then we have to ask the question, well, how is it possible that Judas Iscariot traveled around with God in the flesh for three years with the other apostles and disciples and he had them all duped because at the Last Supper, Jesus is saying, hey, one of you is going to betray me and they're all like, who is it? They had no idea it was Judas. And so, we can be deceived. We can be deceived. Think about First John chapter 2, verse 19. "They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. Bob went out from us because he was not of us, because if he was of us, he would have continued with us. And that is true of anybody who says they're a Christian, and then one day says they're not. They were never saved. They were never saved. And that brings us to our third level of hope. And that is, you rejoice and persevere in sufferings. Verse 3, read it with me. Not only that, so not only are you boasting or rejoicing in glory, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love It's been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So, we're boasting, we're rejoicing in in suffering. Now, this is a purely Christian thing. This is a purely Christian thing. How often have you seen a non-believer rejoicing, boasting in their afflictions and in their trials and in their sufferings? You do not see it. You do not see it. It's impossible for a non-believer to do this. However, Paul's not saying that we are merely boasting within suffering or in the midst of suffering, but we are actually boasting or rejoicing in the suffering itself. He uses the word in, the preposition in, not within or in the midst of. There's a difference. So we're not just like in this sphere of suffering and we're rejoicing in the sphere of suffering. No, we're actually rejoicing in the very particular affliction that is Hitting us. Which is bizarre. It's a total Christian thing to do this. It's it's incredible. Now, the Christian boasts in suffering because the Christian knows intellectually that the suffering produces something desirable. Something good. Again, intellectual. So far we kind of have a pattern here, and it's it's been a It has to do with the mind and not the feelings. We'll get to the feelings, though. But so far, it's been the the mind. We know things. And we know intellectually that suffering produces something desirable. What is it? And Paul tells us in in verses 3 and 4. Knowing, see that word there? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. This is a wonderful progression. Remember, our, 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 ho- our theme is hope and assurance. Now, in Second Peter, Peter is telling us to confirm your election. Confirm it. Confirm your salvation. Be confident of it. Now, if we go through this progression right here in verses 3 and 4, we confirm our election we strengthen our confidence and our hope and glory. Now, let's start with the first one, endurance. Endurance is obviously needed in the Christian life. We do need to make it to the end. We do need to make it to the end. We do need to fight this fight as though to win it. We do need to run this race as though to win it. We need to give it our all. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We need to do this. We need to have endurance. Or think about it, about it as long-windedness. We need to be long-winded like a marathoner. Because we're running this, this, this race in a, in a world that is hostile and against Christianity. We need to endure to the end. Now endurance produces godly character. Now in Second Peter, I don't have it up there, but we see that... Uh, Being obedient to God, living out godly character is what confirms your election. So this makes sense. That endurance produces godly character, and then godly character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. So living obediently, having a godly character, is what produces this hope, or this assurance, or this confirmation that you are saved. So here's the reality about this confidence in your salvation. God judges the heart. He sees the heart. And we do not. That's why we messed up on assuming that Bob was saved when he wasn't. Because we do not see the heart. However, the amazing thing about suffering is that in a moment of suffering, it's as though the physical veil is removed and we actually get to see the heart of someone. We see our own hearts when we go through suffering, and we see others' hearts when they go through suffering. And we get to see the heart for just a moment in the midst of this suffering, in the suffering. And in a sense, our true nature is revealed by fire. Put a painted piece of metal in a fire, and the fire quickly burns away the paint, and what's left is the metal underneath. And so we are put in the fire of suffering, and the paint is removed, and we get to see who we truly are. What's underneath the skin? And it's foolproof. It's really incredible. It's foolproof. Look at somebody in suffering and you will see their heart. Look at yourself in suffering and you will see your heart. It exposes us. It exposes who we really are. There's no hiding it. And it works every time. You put a Christian bought by the blood of Christ through suffering... And their genuine faith will be revealed. What will be underneath? Faith in Christ. Without a doubt. This person will endure, this person will persevere, and this person will boast or rejoice in the suffering. That is not to say, though, that he's this person's jolly or happy or chipper. No, this person may be boasting in their suffering, yet be deeply burdened, deeply grieved. In a sense, miserable. Look at Job. Yet, this person finds their joy in Christ. This person boasts, knowing that the suffering actually strengthens their hope in heaven. This person draws near to Christ, and this person goes to prayer and the word and worships. And only a Christian will do that in suffering. And on the contrary, a unbeliever will always drift away. Every single time. And that's what Jesus says about you know, one of the seeds that's sown on the rocky ground in the parable of the sower. Some gospel seed is sown on rocky ground and does not take root. And when the persecutions or trials of the day come, this plant without roots will be uprooted and it will blow away. There was no root, there was no salvation there. And that's what happens. And so we're living in a very unique time and we'll continue to live in a unique time as all Christians probably thought they were living in a unique time. Uh, when we are hit with suffering, what we start to see is a, is, a, is a refinement of the church. Who in the church wasn't actually a part of us, as First John said? And suffering shows us. So we might see that some of these large churches right now, their, their, their attendance has been cut in half. How is that possible? Well, you put a little coronavirus suffering on this land and you start to see who are saved and who are not. Now you really amp up the suffering and you really see everything will be exposed. Suffering reveals the heart. Now I want to share with you an example in history of a true Christian with true genuine faith who went through suffering and boasted in it and rejoiced in it. And persevered through it, endured through it. Now certainly we could go and look at the example of the Apostle Paul. We see his life in his epistles and in the book of Acts. And it's incredible how he persevered through his suffering. And how he rejoiced in his suffering. But I want to share with you a story, well really a letter that Adoniram Judson wrote to his sister in Christ named Sarah Hall Boardman after she lost her husband on mission as they served in Burma, which is modern-day Malaysia. So for some context, Adoniram and his wife, Ann Judson, they were the first ever American Baptist missionaries. First ever international missionaries. Now they served in Burma, again, which is modern-day Malaysia, uh, 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 starting on July 13th, 1813. So they arrived in Burma July 13th. 1813, And they arrived just after their first child died at sea on the voyage over. So they lost one child at sea and then buried this child at sea. Now fast forward to April 24th, 1827. Fourteen years later, and Adoniram buried his third child, Maria, beside the grave of his wife, Anne, who had died six months earlier. Judson was without family. Having buried three children and his wife, they're all gone. And he's in this horrible place, living in these little huts. It's hot. It's humid. Before this, he had lived in prison for two years straight in this little 30 by 40 place with 100 people in it, never cleaned, living in feces. The smell is horrendous. And you're hung upside down at night by, this, by your feet just so that your shoulders can hit the ground so your neck is kinked all night long. And he did that for two years. And then his wife and his last child died. This man went through suffering. And so he has been through this great suffering. Now let's jump over to this woman, Sarah Boardman. Her husband, George, uh, they arrived in Burma in 1827, which was a few months after Ann Judson had died. Four years later, February 11th, 1831, George died, leaving Sarah a widow with one son alive, having already lost two children in infancy. And so, with that as the context, Adoniram writes this letter to encourage Sarah having already passed through suffering she was presently in. So I'm gonna read that letter that he wrote to her. Now listen to these these elements of rejoicing and perseverance. He goes, My dear sister, you are now drinking the bitter cup who dregs I am somewhat acquainted with. And though for some time you have been aware of its approach, I venture to say that it is far bitterer than you expected. It is common for persons in your situation to refuse all consolation, to cling to the dead, and to fear they shall soon forget the dear object of their affections. But but don't be concerned. I can assure you that months and months of heart-rendering anguish are before you, whether you will or not. I can only advise you to take the cup with both hands and sit down quietly to the bitter repast which God has appointed for your sanctification. As to your beloved, you know that all his tears are wiped away. And that the diadem which encircles his brow, outshines shines the sun. Little Sarah and the other have again found their father. Not the frail, sinful mortal that they left on earth, but an immortal saint, a magnificent, majestic king. What more can you desire for them? While therefore your tears flow, let a due proportion be tears of joy. You take the bitter cup with both hands and sit down to your repast. You will soon learn a secret. And there is sweetness at the bottom. You will find it the sweetest cup that you have ever tasted in all your life. You will find heaven coming near to you, and familiarity with your husband's voice will be a connecting link, drawing you almost within the sphere of celestial music. You will find that it's the sweetest cup that you've ever drinking. You will never hear that come out of the mouth of a non-believer in the midst of suffering. You never will. Such a letter can only be penned by a man of true faith. Now, this woman, Sarah, she actually became Adoniram's second wife and they continued to serve as missionaries in Burma. Now, the story, you know, continues to get dreary. Uh, Adoniram eventually holds Sarah in his arms as she dies. And I want to read to you the, the brief account of her last words. They're on a ship in the port off of South Africa. And Adoniram says this I sat alone by the side of her bed during the hours of the night, endeavoring to administer relief to the distressed body and consolation to the departing soul. At two o'clock in the morning, wishing to obtain one more token of recognition, I roused her attention and said, Do you still love the Savior? Oh, yes, she replied, I ever loved the Lord Jesus Christ. I said again, Do you still love me? She replied in the affirmative by a peculiar expression of her own, then give me one more kiss. And we exchanged that token of love for the last time. Another hour passed, life continued to recede, and she ceased to breathe. For a moment, I traced her upward flight and thought of the wonders which were opening to her view. So again, confident that Sarah is in heaven. In a sense, celebratory in this moment of suffering. Adoniram was a man who went through tremendous suffering and he rejoiced in it he persevered through it and his hope was continued continued to be built his confidence in salvation was continuing to build again ask yourself the question do I rejoice in my suffering do I boast in my suffering would words like this come out of my mouth in the in the middle of the having my husband or wife die in my arms. Now that brings us to our fourth and final level of Christian hope. And that's this, you feel the love of God shed abroad in your hearts. So if we follow the logic of Paul, now this is verse five, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to you. So if we follow the logic, The Christian who has been saved by faith boasts in glory and boasts in suffering because it produces hope. And now this hope does not put someone to shame because, as verse 5 says, God's love has been poured out or shed abroad in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So up until this point, we've been talking about intellectual assurance. We know things. We understand things to be true about the Bible, about faith. But now we're switching to A feeling he switches Paul switches to an inward feeling an inward feeling uh, which is that you feel the love of God poured out in your heart so you're not feeling a love for God certainly you do feel a love for God if you're saved but that's not what Paul is talking about here he's talking about that you feel God's love for you poured out in your hearts through the Holy Spirit Holy Spirit Now, this obviously means that somebody who does not have the Holy Spirit will not feel this love. They will not feel this love poured out in their hearts. Only the person with the Spirit of God can experience this feeling of God's love. Now, like I said about feelings, they can be mistaken and they are subjective. And they can be misplaced. The reality is though. Is that there is such thing as feelings. The person with the spirit of God. Actually does feel the love of God. For them. The issue is. Some people who do not have the Holy Spirit. Will say they feel the love of God. And it's not. Obviously. Because they do not have the spirit of God. So what they're feeling is is misplaced. So how do you know that the feeling that you have, this feeling of the love of God poured out in your heart, is actually from the Spirit, is actually from God, is actually God's love because you're saved? Well, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, the love of Christ controls us. It possesses us which means that when the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts authentically, it means that it automatically moves you to action. It controls you. It possesses you. You will be led into obedience. You feel the love of God in your heart and it makes you want to be obedient. You want to worship him. You want to be more like him. You want to kill your sin. And so you start to see a character that comes from it and so when you see somebody who says that they feel the love of God shed abroad in their hearts and they don't have a character that models that or they don't have a hatred for sin that corresponds to that and they're still living disobedient lives it's likely that their feeling is misplaced so feelings are good they're from God, God made them But feelings can be misplaced. So they are subjective. They are subjective. But it is a sweet, sweet thing when you authentically feel the love of Christ shed a rod in your heart. It's a sweet, sweet thing. And it certainly moves you to obedient living. Now, again, how I talked about this parallel structure between chapter five and chapter eight. And I said we we're going to get to the most amazing climatic uh, passage on uh, the assurance of salvation ever penned at the end of chapter 8. And we're going to read that now. And it's all about this love that Christ has for us. And so if you would turn your Bibles to Romans eight thirty-five to 39 or you can follow along on the screen. Paul says this to conclude this section on Christian hope and Christian assurance. nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that is a good word that we need today. For those of us who have been justified by faith, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Not even our own selves. Salvation is freely given through faith. All who come to Christ in repentance and belief will not be turned away. And if you do not know Christ this morning, I urge you, repent and believe. For as you sit now in your unbelief, there is only one thing that is certain for you, and that is eternal destruction and hell. However, in Christ, you are assured of everlasting life with the Father in heaven. You are assured of paradise. You are assured of the forgiveness of sins. Now, for those of you who know Christ this morning, I urge you, walk in joy. Walk as people who are guaranteed this inheritance in heaven that awaits for you. Walk in knowing that you have peace with God. Approach the throne of God standing in grace. Ask him for things because he's now your father. You can approach him like a son or a daughter because you are a son or daughter. And also be people who boast and rejoice in heaven and glorification. And then do not be ashamed to proclaim Your anticipation for heaven to all who are around you. Sometimes we can feel a misplaced feeling of shame when we're around non-believers to boast and rejoice in our hope in heaven. And certainly be people who rejoice in suffering. What a testimony that is to a fearful world, especially now with the coronavirus. It's an incredible testimony to be one who boasts in this suffering and boasts in this affliction. And my prayer is that we would be a church who boasts in our afflictions as well. And finally, I pray that God's love would be poured out in your heart. We should want and crave that feeling of God's love in our hearts. It's a wonderful thing. And then let let this feeling of love propel you to an obedient life. Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promises that you have given us in your scriptures to know, to understand, to trust, to believe in. Lord, they are a sure foundation. They are a rock, Lord. And everything else is sinking sand, Lord. But we, children of you, stand on this rock. Stand on your promises, Lord. And we hope. We have this unshakable hope, Lord. This certainty, Lord, that we will one day be in heaven. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your salvation, Lord, that you accomplished on the cross, Lord, taking our sin on yourself and facing the wrath of the Father in our place, Lord. Would we continue this week boasting in glory and boasting in suffering. In your name, amen.